Hello, everyone. This is Damien O'Connell with the Warfighting Society, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 8 of Controversy and Clarity. For over a month now, a horrific war has been raging in Ukraine, and one of the key battlegrounds in the fight there has been the information space, a place where data, narratives, points of view, social media, misinformation, and disinformation all collide and vie, not just for our attention, but our very understanding of the truth. While it's been extremely difficult, if not impossible at times, to sift fact from fiction in this war, as with all wars really, something that I think can help us tremendously here are the habits of mind known as critical thinking. So it's with great excitement that we share our conversation today with a world-class expert on critical thinking, Dr. Gerald Nosich. Gerald has given more than 250 workshops to instructors and governmental agencies on all aspects of teaching critical thinking. He is the author of Reasons and Arguments, published by Wadsworth in 1982, and his second book, Learning to Think Things Through, A Guide to Critical Thinking Across the Curriculum, published in its fourth edition by Pearson in 2012, has been translated into Spanish, Chinese, Arabic, and Turkish. His third book, Critical Writing, Using the Concepts and Processes of Critical Thinking to Write a Paper, was published in 2021 by Roman and Littlefield. Gerald has given workshops for instructors at all levels of education in the United States, Canada, Thailand, Lithuania, Austria, Germany, Singapore, and England. He has worked with the U.S. Department of Education on a project for national assessment of higher order thinking skills, given teleconferences sponsored by PBS and Starlink on teaching for critical thinking within subject matter courses, served as a consultant for ACT in critical thinking and language arts assessment, and been featured as a noted scholar at the University of British Columbia. He is the author of numerous articles and audio and videotapes on critical thinking. He has been assistant director at the Center for Critical Thinking at Sonoma State University and is an associate of the Center and Foundation for Critical Thinking. Gerald is Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York College at Buffalo and at the University of New Orleans. I learned a great deal from my exchange with Gerald and think you will too. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Gerald Nosich. Gerald, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an honor to have you here. Pleasure to be here, Damien. So I think we'll just jump into it. What is critical thinking? What is it not? Okay, so critical thinking it has uh, two parts to it in a way. So an issue I'm trying to think through or a decision I'm trying to make, I'm thinking through the problem, the issue, the situation. That's one part. And oftentimes that's all people mean by critical thinking. But critical thinking actually has a step back from that. So as I'm thinking about the problem or the issue, I'm not just thinking about the issue or the problem. I'm also thinking about how am I thinking about the issue right. or okay. problem. Meaning I'm not just looking at how to solve the problem, I'm wondering, well, what assumptions am I making about it? Or what are some implications of it? So critical thinking has this reflective step in it. Sometimes it's called metacognitive, but mm. it's a reflective step in which you step back and you ask yourself, Am I thinking this through accurately? Am I being accurate at what I'm saying? Is what I'm thinking relevant to the issue at hand? So that's in a nutshell what it is. But you also ask, what is it not? Whole bunch of things that it's not. Yeah. Um, it's not jumping to conclusions. It's not, here's something my students have often done. I ask a question and I'll have a student who will raise his hand and give an answer. And it's an answer that neither he nor anyone else in the class believes, but then he'll use a prodigious amount of reasoning power to defend that answer that neither he nor anyone else believes. Yeah, and to yeah. me, that's not critical thinking. It's certainly not full-fledged critical thinking. Critical thinking doesn't mean taking your views, whatever they happen to be, and defending them with the best reasons you've got. It also means examining your views to see how reasonable they are. 
Mm-hmm. So I don't think of critical thinking as the same as argumentation, where mm-hmm. part of what argumentation is you defend your point of view. That's one of the major things it's not. If we could continue along those lines, what are the most common misconceptions of critical thinking that you've encountered or you typically encounter? And why do you think those are so common? Yeah, that's a really good question. There's several misconceptions, but let me just focus on one that people think of critical thinking as as kind of good thinking, just good thinking. And there's a lot of truth in that. It is good thinking. And when you're thinking well, you're engaged pretty much in critical thinking. But the problem with that is that people who say that or have that in the back of their mind don't tell you what to do in order to think through something well. So I, when I gave a workshop recently, a person gave me a critical thinking question and it was, uh, okay, so if nations strive to be self-sufficient economically, will that work out for the nation's benefit or for, or for the benefit of all other nations? And it's a critical thinking question. You can see that you have to amass information. You have to examine things about it. But if I answer that question really well, that gives me no handle on how to address the next critical thinking question, right? Mm-hmm. I've thought through it critically. So people think of it as good thinking, but they don't have a structure in which to make their thinking better. So I was on my way to class one day and my son, who was an adolescent at the time said, so you're going to teach a critical thinking class? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, what do you do in that class? You just point at people and say, think, right? So what do you do to think things through? And that's one of the things about the model of critical thinking that I work with, Paul Elder model. You can find out what to do. Not perfectly, of course, nothing's gonna be perfect, Mm -hmm. but. You can know how to go about it. No, that's, so, that's helpful. Yeah. How do you see critical thinking and creative thinking either aligned or, or how do they differ? I mean, what's the relationship between these things? I think they're often confused for each other. They're often mentioned together. I mean, I'm mentioning them here in a question. So if you could just talk about the relationship between those two, that'd be great. Yeah, they're intertwined. Almost all critical thinking involves creative thinking. Almost all creative thinking involves critical thinking. So I'd say the heart of creative thinking is that you're generating or you're generating something new. It's not necessarily inspiration that's coming to you, but you're generating something new. So one of the things that you do in critical thinking is you're always looking for alternatives. So suppose I'm thinking through a military operation, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to be thinking, well, this is our goal, but there could be this also this other goal that we could go for. And here's a means for achieving that goal, but there are several others. Let me examine them. So notice I'm looking for alternatives. I'm being creative in my thinking, but I'm also then as part of that going to be evaluating. Here's one path. Here's a different path. Here's a goal. Here's another goal. So I'm exercising criticality all the way through. I think one of the things that throws this off is that people sometimes have the idea of creativity as kind of an artist, a painter who splashes paint on the canvas and does it one way or another, or does it just out of pure inspiration. And I think that's a really misleading picture first, because I don't think that's the way creativity operates in most of us, but I don't think it operates that way. Even with that person, if I take a prolific great painter, Picasso, he did a lot of paintings that he thought were not very good, right, that he right. thought, right? So he's using criteria, he's using criticality, mm-hmm. even if it's unconscious, even if it's not to the forefront of his mind. So sure. I see them intertwined all the way through creativity and criticality. How do critical thinking and divergent and convergent thinking relate? How do they differ? 
Yeah, yeah. And uh, since you sent me this question, I uh, thought about that for a while. I don't usually use those terms. They seem to be misleading terms. But in some aspects of critical thinking, I'm going to engage almost entirely in convergent thinking or what's called convergent thinking. So I'm reading an essay or an article on military operations or on anything. And what, if I, what I want to do is I want to understand the article. I want to understand the author's point of view. I want to understand the main point, the evidence being given. My focus is on understanding. And if I put it in terms of convergence, that's convergent thinking. I want to get inside the author's point of view, their way of seeing things, their way of analyzing things. That's convergent thinking. Mm -hmm. After I've done that, I can now step back and evaluate. So should I believe this essay? Is it well thought out? Is it clear? Is it relevant? Is it precise enough in the relevant places? Does it take account of the complexities of the situation? Right. Notice now I'm diverging from the author's point of view. Mm, I'm yeah, stepping okay. outside it. So there are cases where I want my students say to, I would never say convergent thinking, but to immerse themselves in an essay and to do that before they evaluate it. Right? Because oftentimes people just evaluate right. things without understanding them at all. Right, right. You're first trying to understand, as you said, understand the right. author's point of view, where they're coming from before you diverge, before you start to pick apart and examine critically. Right. That's great. What about the relationship between critical thinking and logic? Well, logic means several different things. A prominent way critical thinking is often taught is in a course on formal logic, where you use symbols. And that, I think, has very little relation to critical thinking at all, partly because it's so strictly deductive that you can't really use it under real situations at all, where there are lots of unknowns, right? You have to deal with them. Another way people use logic is what's called informal logic, and that deals with argumentation. And I think that's a legitimate part of critical thinking, an important part of critical thinking, but it doesn't, it's not the whole thing. How I argue for a point, how I evaluate someone else's argument, those are all very important, but how I explain things to someone is mm -hmm. also important. How I make plans to do things is different from argumentation. Right. And I can say that the thing that actually set me on to this, and my degree is in philosophy, and I taught in the philosophy department, but high school let me teach anything. So I taught natural sciences, I taught social sciences, I taught art. So I began working in the 90s, I began working with nurses, because they got tuned into critical thinking, and critical thinking is wedded very closely to nursing, right? But nurses are not engaged in argumentation much at all. Yeah. They're engaged in analyzing a situation, giving a nursing diagnosis for it, right. looking for complications. None of that is argumentation. If you're a really adroit logician, you can turn all of that into an argument, right. but it's really not. It's yeah. Really, yeah. yeah. I'm also curious to hear your thoughts about the relationship between critical thinking and problem solving. In the past, you've written that you don't need a problem to solve to think critically. Could you talk about that? What situations or circumstances might you be in that you want to think critically, but it doesn't involve solving a problem? Right. Critical thinking, in my view, includes problem solving. So if you're engaged in problem solving, you're engaged in critical thinking, but not necessarily the reverse. You can think critically about many things other than problem solving. An example is, uh, well, wellness in nursing or in medicine, right? I want a doctor to think 
critically about wellness. But wellness isn't a problem or a problem to be solved. It's, mm. it's almost the opposite of a problem or a problem to be solved. Yet I want people to analyze it, to see what's involved in it, to see how it can be promoted and so forth. Yeah. But in addition, here's an observation that's more pointed with that. And it's that in classes, what usually, what happens often is that someone gives you a problem to solve. Usually that's a teacher giving a problem to a student to solve. And it's the student's job to solve the problem. When teachers do that, I'm going to say something that's going to sound negative, but it, it's not negative really, built in. When a teacher does that, gives you a very good question to solve, that teacher is doing a major part of the critical thinking for you, right? So what that teacher has done is noticed a good question, right? Found it, then formulated it really well. Well, notice, neither of those is problem solving. One of them is problem finding, identifying, noticing, and the other is problem formulating in a way that's clear and precise enough to right. answer, right? And those are things that I want, if I'm a teacher in the military or anywhere else, I want to teach my students to do, not just solve the problems I give them, but to go around noticing problems and then formulating them in a way that makes them more amenable to solution. Now, that makes total sense. And I think that's, I think that's something certainly in the Marine Corps I've seen where we may do too much of the work for the students up front, whether it's missing out on opportunities for critical thinking because of how we're packaging the problem, like you said, right. or, or else, but certainly seen it. I'd like to get your take on the Dunning-Kruger effect. Are you familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect? And assuming it exists, because there are some people who disagree with its validity, do you see critical thinking as an antidote to the effect? Well, the way it's usually formulated is that people with low ability tend to overestimate their skill level, their, their ability, their, or their likelihood that they will succeed. And uh, as far as I can see, that's probably true, but I don't think it's true, especially of people with low ability. Mm -hmm. I think a tremendous number of people at all levels of ability tend to overestimate how competent they are. And also, conversely, a certain percentage of people tend to underestimate their competence at all levels of ability. So one of the traits of critical thinking is intellectual humility. Mm -hmm. And that means recognizing what I don't know, owning up to what I don't know. It means that, among other things. And it also involves intellectual courage, being ready to try new things and possibly have them not work out and not succeed. So... I'd say that the Dunning-Kruger effect fits in with intellectual humility, and it also fits into the barrier, one of the main barriers to critical thinking is egocentricity, mm -hmm. and the Dunning-Kruger effect partakes of that. But let, let me say one other thing. I actually don't like the Dunning-Kruger effect or talk about it because my impression is that the, when people talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect, they're always assuming that they are in the level of the high ability people. Mm, mm. I don't see people saying, you know, I have very low ability. And so I tend to overestimate my competence. Right. About so yeah. there's a certain amount of self-congratulation yeah. uh, in the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that is something to be on the lookout for people talking about it as if they're not affected by it or that they, they may not be partaking in it as well. I think that is a, a possible danger. Mm -hmm. In your experience, do some people seem more predisposed to thinking critically than, than others? And 
If so, what do you ascribe that to? Is it nature, nurture, both? Yeah, I, uh, I do see that. I do see, it does seem to me to be the case that some people come to critical thinking more naturally than others. I sometimes say that the way it works with school is that some people continue to be critical thinkers in the teeth of the educational system, despite all the barriers being thrust at them. That's an exaggerated statement, but I think there's, there's some truth in it. But some people do seem to be better at it right from the beginning, from early on. I don't think it's, it's linked all that strongly to intelligence, whatever that turns out to be. Some highly intelligent people developed late. And let me go back to your original question, the nature-nurture part. It seems to me I couldn't really give an answer to that. It seems to me that's, that needs a lot more research before we could ever come up with an answer to something as complex as critical thinking, what it's due to or what predisposition toward it arises. Yeah, more research is needed. Mm-hmm. Are there ways you think we can predispose young men and women, you know, people of military service age to think critically? Are there things that we can do while they're younger to help them think critically as they get older? Yeah, plenty, plenty. I mean, just choose a few that seem paramount or come to my mind first, anyhow. One of them is just asking questions, asking Mm -hmm. questions. And asking questions is often hard, first, because in a lot of situations, we discourage people from asking questions. But second of all, because you often just get in the mode of listening. You fall into a listening role. So here's an example. In, in movies about the military or the police, there'll be this operation and the person in charge, the officer in charge will say, okay, this group goes over to the right inside. This group goes to the left. You go up the stairs in the back and the cars will come in from this side and the weapons will be this, that. Are there any questions? And there are no questions. Nobody asked any questions. And, and I'm not saying that's the way it is in real life, but I've talked to people who say, yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it often is in real life. And yeah. I would want people to be asking questions. Yeah, well, what if this part goes wrong? Or what's our sec- backup plan? Or what's our second backup plan? Sure. Or Right? Now, that's in a very tense situation. So I might be overstating that a little, but I don't think so. It's tense mm-hmm. because it's a dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. But just to be asking questions ordinarily, like... Can you tell me more what you mean by that? Could you give me an example of what you mean? So a lot of my questions can be about just understanding what it is you're saying. So can you give me some of of the details about this operation that we're going to be engaged in? Mm -hmm. So it's a a habit of asking questions that seems to me to be maybe the most essential thing. And I'm not even saying ask them always out loud. Mm -hmm. Ask them in your head so that you're thinking about it. And people who teach critical thinking, even in uh, kindergarten classes, emphasize asking questions very much. So here's a little aside. I was enchanted by it because it was told to me by a kindergarten teacher. In kindergarten, children are often taught the story of Chicken Little. It's read to them, or some of them can read it. Chicken Little, an acorn falls in her head. She says, the sky is falling. She runs down the street. She goes to Henny Penny, and I've forgotten them all, Foxy Loxy. (laughs) And so uh, I think teachers read this because it's a nice little story and because it encourages vocabulary development. But this teacher said, okay, so Chicken Little says to Henny Penny, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. What questions should Henny Penny have asked of Chicken Little to see whether she should run around as well? What questions should Chicken Little herself have asked before she drew the conclusion that the sky is falling? So questioning, I think, for young people or for people at any age is a prime opening 
tool. Sure. Not necessarily argumentative questions, though, what you're hearing. It's, oftentimes, it's about understanding and then later evaluating, maybe. If we could stick on the topic of questions for a, a while longer, mm -hmm. what's your, you know, what are your thoughts on the relationship between Socratic questioning and critical thinking? Well, I give workshops on Socratic questioning. It's a great way to teach where the main object is to probe student thinking. So I can ask, so what's the main point of chapter two in your view? And I would ask someone else and I would say, so are you making the following assumption about this author? Or what do you see as the implications of this? Or I might say, Susan, what do you agree with John's point of view on this? Or I can say, Susan, could you restate what John said in your own words? So I'm getting mutual understanding going on. That's in a classroom setting at virtually any level in our more non-educational life or not formal education. Socratic questioning takes many forms and we engage in them very often and we can engage in them more. So one I kind of press with my students is mirroring where maybe you're at the, at the dining room table with your family and someone says something and you disagree with it. Well, you can disagree, but you might first say, well, let me see if I understand what you're saying. I hear you as saying X, Y, and Z. Have I got it right? Right. That's a nice way of asking it. And often the person will say, oh, no, no, I didn't mean that at all. And so you've short circuited the argument. You yeah. haven't pushed it out the window, but you've begun by clarifying it. So that's how a relatively straightforward one that I can do. Sure. And there are other questions I can ask that are like that. My uh, boss is really mistreating me. I'm so upset. And you, know, you can say, well, can you give me some examples of that? How do you think your boss looks at this situation? Right? It's not because I'm taking your boss's side. It's because it helps to see the boss's view of this situation. So those are regular Socratic questions. Uh, thank you for that. Gerald, when did you first encounter the concept of critical thinking? Oh, it's funny. I uh, taught in the philosophy department, and it took me maybe five years to realize that something was going on that I didn't realize was going on. And that is that I would give my students essay exams, which required critical thinking, and my students did extraordinarily well. I mean, I had a great deal of success, and I was very pleased. Other people were pleased with it, and students were very pleased. And it it took me a long time to realize that the excellent reasoning I was seeing in their essay exams was really my reasoning. I mean, it's what I had taught them in class. And so I began trying to ask them questions that were ones I had not covered in class, but were like the ones that were covered in class. And what I found is they went right back to the way of thinking that they engaged in before they ever started this course. So I began revamping my teaching. I also wrote my first book, and that is how do you go about thinking things through? I hadn't known the word critical thinking, the term critical thinking at that time. Hmm. So it was on reasoning, which is a close synonym to critical thinking, not exactly. And then afterwards, Richard Paul invited me to the International Conference on Critical Thinking because he was using my book in his classes. So that's the time I first encountered the actual term. Yeah. Careful reasoning is a good synonym or figuring things out is a good synonym for it. Yeah. What was your reaction to either discovering or starting to learn about the literature on critical thinking and meeting Richard and getting involved in that whole world? Yeah. So my way of doing critical thinking was quite different. I kept looking for streamlined ways and some of them were pretty good. Like ones I taught my students were ask four questions. What does it mean? Is it true? 
even if it's true, so what? And what alternatives are there? Now that's a pretty good way. And so I began, so Richard asked me if I would wanted to be assistant director at the foundation. And because of other considerations, I could only do it for a year. So my family and I moved to California from New Orleans and I was assistant director for a year. And then Richard and I began working, working this out. And we would talk every day. I and mean, it was really, it was delightful for both of us. We just got to talk about critical thinking from the morning till night. And <laughs> I know that sounds uh, prodigious, but Richard was very good at, I could say engineering it, but we would be exhausting a certain topic. And then he would kind of seamlessly shift into a different topic and the excitement would come back. Yeah. So, but I also gave workshops around the country at various universities. And I told Richard, what I'll do is for this year, I will try on this way of doing critical thinking. I mean, we'd worked out the elements of reasoning and had, had the standards or had versions of the standards or something like them. But I said, I would try it on for a year, but then I was almost certainly going to go back to my old way of doing critical thinking. And in fact, that happened <laughs> because I think I put myself in a state of mind where I'm just going to act as if this is my version of critical thinking. But then when I, when I went back to New Orleans and I began giving other workshops, I began to think, wow, there's a lot that my methods just don't cover. There's a great, great deal about it that isn't addressed. And then I began seeing how the method that would later became called the Paul Elder model, I mean, it, it addresses anything that involves reasoning. So for instance, in teaching, People pay great attention to accuracy. You, can you give the right answer to certain questions? And that, and it's important, but also important are to answer clearly mm -hmm. to, and to make sure your answer is relevant to the issue at hand, to take account of the complexities of an issue, to look at it broadly from multiple points of view. So the usual standard of accuracy only covers one aspect of critical thinking. So remember my four, they take account of so what does it mean? But then, is it true? That's mm -hmm. accuracy. Mm -hmm. Even if it's true, so what? That's relevance. Mm -hmm. But what about the others? Mm -hmm. What about the others? So it just changed my whole way of doing critical thinking. Wow. Uh, the point I want to make is it took a while, even for somebody really well-practiced in critical yeah. thinking, teaching for critical thinking, and writing books on critical thinking. It took a while. And that's informative for me because oftentimes with students or, with, or with when, I, when I work with faculty, Sort of in me is I kind of I have this kind of unstated expectation or hope that people are just going to take on the critical thinking in a wholesale way. Yeah. 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 That actually reminds me of a question I was going to ask later, and that's how do you support people who are interested in critical thinking, but they're not maybe willing to take it on wholesale? And I mean, I assume you're having or you should be showing patience and a, a willingness for people to struggle with the concepts and, right. and that resistance in a way is a good thing because it shows that their current belief system or approach to critical thinking is butting up against this new idea or this new method, this framework mm -hmm. that you're sharing. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Patience isn't the word I would use. It would be understanding the realistic constraints on that operate in people, mm -hmm. including myself. So I encourage people to try it out. 
Try it out in your classes. Set a certain amount of time aside from what you're doing right now and try that out. Keep close tabs on whether it's worked or not and what's gone well about it, what's not gone so well, and maybe correct the parts that haven't gone so well. So you need, uh, you need to practice it. It's one of these things about critical thinking is that you can't learn it by hearing about it or reading about it either. It's like waltzing. I mean, you can read about waltzing all you want, but it's very different from actually waltzing. Sure. So yeah, so sure. critical thinking is like that. Yeah, it makes sense. You've mentioned how your conception of critical thinking has changed uh, already. Has it changed since your adoption of the Paul Elder model? Has it become more refined? Are there things that you've discarded? How, if at all, has it evolved since your adoption? One way it evolved, critical thinking across the curriculum. Well, critical thinking is involved in all disciplines, maybe even to exactly the same degree. Not in all ways of teaching a discipline or a field or an area, but it's involved in all areas. And it's completely involved in all areas. So I began working on how can you teach people to think critically in a sociology course? How do you get people to think sociologically? Or in this case, how would you get people to think militarily, Mm -hmm. right? Which is different from having information, which is different from just following rote procedures. It's thinking about a situation in military terms or in engineering school, thinking in terms of thinking at engineering. We, We don't always have a nice adverb like thinking militarily, but you can say thinking in engineering is thinking the way a well-informed, observant, highly reasonable engineer thinks. So my goal was be to help teachers reformulate their goal, but their goal is not to help students if I'm the teacher. It's not have you know what I know. It's to have you learn how to think the way I think. Yeah. where I don't mean me personally, but the way one thinks in this domain, in right. this discipline. That's helpful. You have been a proponent of the Paul Elder model of critical thinking. We've mentioned that a few times. We've referenced the model a few times. Could you talk more about the model? Why do you think it provides users with a, a useful model for thinking critically? Yeah, I'll do it, but I'm going to be using my hands to demonstrate it. And I realize this is all audio. <laughs> so that, yeah, I'll send people a link or something that they could find a chart to look at. The nuts and bolts of critical thinking as we do it, though I would say it's the nuts and bolts of critical thinking because every other method I see of doing critical thinking fits within the Paul Elder model. The nuts and bolts of critical thinking are the elements of reasoning. Uh, there are eight of them. And the elements are ones like purpose, question at issue, assumptions, implications, and consequences, concepts, conclusions or interpretations, and point of view. I believe that's all eight. And those eight are, it's an attempt to be complete, meaning any other element of reasoning you find is really going to be on this list in one of these categories. And if not, we have to amend the we, we would have to amend the elements. And we usually arrange them in a circle because it's an attempt to show there's no first one or second one that you have. There's no order to them. So those are the nuts and bolts of critical thinking in this sense. They're the elements of reasoning. And that means that whenever you reason through anything, you always have these, all eight of these. I always have a purpose. I always have a question or issue. I'm always making assumptions. I always have information. And that means they serve as a source of very good questions over and over again. 
I can ask, what are my assumptions? Not just about me, I can ask, what are your assumptions? What are the assumptions of this author? If I'm in a military operation, what are the assumptions on my side? What are the assumptions on the other side? Implications and consequences or concept. What counts as success? <laughs> success is a really hard yeah. concept to unpack. So the elements of reasoning are, I say, are the nuts and bolts of critical thinking, but they're only half. The other half are the standards, clear, accurate, precise, relevant. We list nine usually, though those are not complete at all. There are innumerably many standards, and those are the quality control. The elements, purpose, goal, question, issue, assumptions, those are there whether I'm thinking well or badly, right? right. What makes my thinking good is if it's clear, accurate, and relevant, takes account of the complexities. As far as I can see, if I get hold of this way of doing critical thinking, I have an inroad to think about anything, to think my way through any piece of reasoning mm -hmm. or, or any product of human reasoning, like a car engine or, or a weapon or a defense strategy or anything mm -hmm. like that. All of those involve all eight of the elements and all standards are relevant to it. You mentioned having the elements assembled in a circle to mm -hmm. give the point that you can start anywhere. None of them are really principal or first. If you had to choose an element that you thought was the most important or would typically be a good place to start, what would you advise people on or what would you choose? I would say you can't do it. You can't do it. Yeah. Uh, that is, it depends on the context. It depends mm. what you're trying to do. If you're buying a piece of electronic equipment, you're going to already have in mind your goal of doing, I want to buy this piece of equipment. I might raise what questions are, I should be asking about this, but I might also ask, what are the implications and consequences? Notice, which of those is more important? But mm -hmm. I can't say. I mean, it just depends on what it is I'm trying to do. So I would say there's no one that, no one of the elements that we usually begin with it seems as if there is. Lots hmm. of people say, well, you always begin with your question. And other people say, you always begin with your purpose. And those two may be closely related. But notice that what I just said didn't begin with a question or a purpose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I began with an assumption that they're right. making. Similarly, <laughs> what you began with when you asked me this was a piece of information. Gerald, you said X, Y, and Z. And what I want to ask you is dot, dot, dot. So oftentimes it seems because we don't notice the way yeah. we're beginning in different situations. Sure. It, it's like asking, what's the most important part of driving a car? Is it yeah. the gas or is it the brake? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. These, are, these are both really important. It's hard, I think, to come down on one side or the other. That, yeah. that makes sense, though. Could you talk about the differences between assumptions and inferences, and maybe give an example of those two? Yeah, good question. Uh, a question that's, that's often asked. And I'll tell you that in, in my university level courses, I, I don't use the word inferences at all. I use the word conclusion, partly because inference means two different things. It means the place I get to, like my inference is that this podcast is going well so far. That mm -hmm, might be my mm -hmm. But the other way of using the word inference is that is it's a word for the going from one place to another. I'm making the inference, right? So I, and my students have an almost impossible time with the word inference. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, K through six teachers teach students to use the word inference really well, but by university it's too late. So I use the word conclusion. Um, yeah. 
right? So the difference between an assumption and a conclusion, a conclusion is where you're trying to go. And an assumption is how you're trying to get there. Hmm. So if you're going to draw a conclusion about something, you actually do it primarily on the basis of assumptions, information, and implications and consequences. Like I can say, okay, I'm going to make a decision about this, but wow, this one's going to have terrible consequences. So that's a reason not to make that decision. So assumptions are one of the ways I get. It's what I take for granted on the way toward reaching a conclusion. Someone asked me about this in a question and answer session at the foundation recently and asked for an analogy. And um, an analogy is, is uh, you're going home at the end of a day's work. Home is your conclusion. And the assumptions are the streets you take to get home. Mm. So that distinguishes them. The reason they get confusing, though, is that if I give you a statement, you can't tell whether it's an assumption or a conclusion. If I say honesty is the best policy, it might be a conclusion you've come to after long thought. It might be an assumption you make. So what makes something an assumption or a conclusion depends on how it's working in your reasoning. Mm. If I'm using this as a step to get somewhere else, it's an assumption. If I'm using it to where I'm getting to, it's the conclusion. Got it. Okay. Oh, that's helpful. Yeah. Could you talk for a moment about concepts? These, these are ideas, yeah. but they're more than just ideas, right? There's, there's something more to them. Yeah. And uh, the way I use concepts is a particularly ambiguous, widely applicable term in lots of different respects. And I use it to, to capture something that I use a concept to mean something that's named by a word or really by a term. Like I mentioned, success a little while ago. It doesn't have to be a single word. It could be military operations. Mm -hmm. You have a concept of military operations. We have a concept of democracy. We have a concept of freedom. We have a concept of marriage. What is What does it mean to be married? We have a concept of it. So mm -hmm. I tend to use the word concepts to mean a term or a word, not a whole sentence. So why does that matter? Well, for example, honesty is the best policy. I think is an assumption, whereas honesty is a concept, right? Mm -hmm. What do you mean by honesty? A good way to get at concepts is think of the question, what do you mean by, and then usually what follows is a, is a concept. Why does that matter? Uh, it matters because concepts are much more flexible than full statements. Mm -hmm. Honesty is the best policy applies in some situations and not in others. Right? Some, it's entirely irrelevant. Whereas honesty is a flexible concept that I can use in a lot of different contexts. Well, the reason, or one of the reasons concepts is so important, well, two reasons. One is that it's the one of the elements that we, I think we most often neglect. We speak about democracy without stepping back and asking, well, what do I mean in this case by democracy? I don't mean define your terms. That's too, too specific and hard edged. But what do I mean by democracy or freedom? What do I mean by freedom? That's one reason is that it's so neglected. And the other reason is it plays such an important role in our thinking that, and that thinking it's unexamined. Very little of our education focuses us on concepts and the way we usually handle it in education is just by giving a definition of a yeah. concept. Yeah. And that becomes, that becomes pretty barren for most for most people who learn the definition yeah so much of the work that i did over the last four years with the marine corps was focused on getting marines to stop looking so much at content and start looking more at concepts yeah. 
and seeing how the content fit into those concepts. But to, to right. take a higher level view, we used fundamental and powerful concepts in, in the workshop. We'll get to that later in our interview here. But it was, I mean, for me, at least as a facilitator, it seemed very freeing to be able to think from a, a larger perspective, from a conceptual perspective, rather than just stuff and things in a curriculum. Right. So right. Um, George Box famously said that all models are wrong, but some are useful. If you had to point to a drawback or a, a downside of the Paul Elder model or a place where you would you know, like to see enhancements made, what would it be and why? I could answer it two different ways, maybe. One is uh, an area that we don't do much about is the social dimension of reasoning. I mean, it's really brought, been brought home to people, to me anyhow, with the pandemic in that how intrinsic to me social interaction was without my realizing it. I mean, we always knew that humans were social animals, but I just didn't realize how much this would do to me to be so isolated for such a long time. It's not apparent to me that it's that it's from the isolation or the mm -hmm. lack of social mm -hmm. uh, social interaction, but I recognize it, it must be. Yeah. I mean, it's not just in me, but it's a, a, across the world. Sure. So we haven't worked in the social dimension much at all. So that I would say is the biggest thing that that could be enhanced in it. The other thing I was going to say, I don't want to say that I don't think all models are wrong. It's a strange thing to say, but all models are going to leave something out. I guess my, yeah, my thought behind that phrase is, you know, if models are meant to be representations, right? Me right. Mental representations of something existing out in the world that, you know, they're unable to fully replicate, fully capture everything. You know, as, as you're saying, something's left out. So wrong in the sense that they're incomplete, maybe. I, I don't know if you agree with that. Or yeah, that's it. That, that, that seems right. So, so in that spirit, I can say, yeah, here's something that is uh, at least confusing. I don't want to say that it's wrong, but in our ordinary ways of thinking things through or, or of reasoning things out, all the elements of reasoning are present or most of the elements of reasoning are present, but we're not aware of them. We, our thinking just flows freely, like my words are now flowing freely. But my word, the words I'm saying to you, the sentences I'm saying to you and that you're saying to me are full of assumptions, implications and consequences, information, all mixed up together, purposes, questions at issue. Uh, they're all mixed up together. And so what it does is it doesn't, the model do, seems like it doesn't fit with our ordinary way of reasoning because so much of this is under the surface. Sure. In a way, it's similar to other kinds of elements like chemical elements. Knowing the chemical elements doesn't help you grow a tree. It doesn't, even though it's made all of those molecules and of those elements, right. it doesn't help. It helps you only in very specific kinds of circumstances, but it's always there. Mm -hmm. And when you want to do certain kinds of things by referring to the elements, you get insights that you don't get if you get, if you look only at wood or sure. something. Yeah. Sure. That's a crude analogy, which <laughs> just came to me off the top of my, off my top of my head. So it that fits with sense. what you're saying, how models often <laughs> misrepresent certain parts. Right. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. 
there's something that you've written about that you use uh, in your teaching. It's the CI method. Could you right. talk about that? Where did it come from? What does it mean? Yeah, it's a S-E-E-I. It stands for State, Elaborate, Exemplify, and Illustrate. And it's a way of being clear. So if I want to if I want to explain something to you, I can state it, which means say it in a single sentence as concisely as possible, and then elaborate, explain it at greater length. If a statement part is a single sentence or two, then the elaboration part can be a paragraph or two. And then I give an example, not any old example, but a good example that captures it. And then the last one is an illustration, which as we use it is different from an example in English, we use the word illustration and example often interchangeably. Sure. But when we use it, illustration is much more akin to when we say it's an illustrated book. Illustrated book is not a book with examples. It's a book with pictures in it. Mm -hmm. So illustration is a kind of analogy or a metaphor or a comparison. We've been using them off and on throughout this whole podcast when I compared some aspects of critical thinking to driving a car right, right, right. An analogy or this one with like it's like the chemical elements mm -hmm. and one of the great things about this is that it gets things across very clearly when you do it well and the other person the other person can understand much better what it is i'm saying sure. so let me do one for you sure. so the most famous definition of critical thinking is that it's reasonable reflective thinking focused on deciding what to believe or do. That's by Robert Ennis, and I'm, I made some contribution to that. So that's the statement part. If I elaborate, I can say, well, it's reasonable and it's reflective. I'm not gonna do that at length, but I'll say, say it's reasonable means it adheres to standards of critical thinking, clear, accurate, relevant, and so forth. That's what it means to say that it's reasonable. To say it's reflective is that part that I mentioned before in that it involves thinking about my thinking. And so here's the complex question. What do you think about when you think about your thinking? And the answer to that question is, what do you think about your goals, your assumptions, the question at issue, the implications and consequences? That is, you think about the elements of reasoning and you also think about the standards. So what I, what I think I've done is stated what critical thinking is, elaborated on it. An example might be your preparation for this podcast, right? I'm thinking you're, you're, you're coming up with good questions. You're assuming the kind of the, that these are the kinds of questions that I'll, I'll be able to answer, or maybe some that I might not be able to answer will be challenging. So that's an example of critical thinking. Here's my illustration. And I say it, I'm not very good at illustrations. I have to work really hard to come up with illustrations. And so here's one I came up with it. I'm very proud of it. So I want to be able to tell, tell it to you. It helps if you wear glasses. If you wake up in the morning, you can't find your glasses. And everything's out of kilter in the room. It's not just blurry. Things are unfamiliar. You stumble into things. Nothing's in its right place. Then you grope around and you find your glasses and you put them on and you breathe a sigh of relief. You're at home in the world. Things are in their right place. You see how things fit together. That's what critical thinking is like. It's exactly. like finding your glasses. Exactly. Things fall into place and you understand them much better around you. Sure. So if you get the feel of that, I'm yeah. thinking the analogy, the illustration I just gave brings home my concept of critical thinking in a very strong, clear way, probably clearer than the example or the statement or the elaboration. 
Well, it's interesting because when you were describing the illustration, I'm getting a picture in my mind. I'm, I do wear glasses or, you know, I wear contacts Mm -hmm. and I've experienced that. And I, you know, I know what it's like to not know, you know, what's, what's around you because you can't see anything, but the comparison of glasses to, you know, the clarity, quite literally the vision to clarity Mm. that uh, glasses bring critical thinking brings to your, your thinking. You know, yeah. I thought that was very neat. Thank you. What's your preferred method or, or methods for introducing adult students and educators to critical thinking? And why are these the methods you use? Well, with, with students, I ask them, we I do maybe a third, maybe half the course on analyzing readings like essays or articles in newspapers or things like that. And the reason for that is kind of It's a pedagogical reason. It's that written articles have a concreteness that we can get to, and I can make definite judgments about it. And that's very helpful for getting students in touch with these elements of reasoning. So if we read an an essay, I might say to my students, okay, so here's what I see as the purpose. The students have done it. They've written it all out and turned it all in. Here's what I see as the purpose. Here, you might say this is also the purpose. If you have something else, then... Either there's a purpose in there that I haven't noticed, or you said the same thing I've said, but in different words, or mistaken, right? That is, I can actually give, I can give concrete judgments about a a writing, a piece of writing, because there's the author and there are the words in front of me. Similarly, with many of the other elements of reasoning, what information is being established? With assumptions, what's the author's assumptions? We're not going to be the same. But if I identify the the most important assumptions in that author's article, some of those should be in your analysis as well. We can't be missing one another entirely. A reading with students gives much more concrete answers. Whereas if I ask them to analyze decisions that they're making, or if I ask them to analyze a course that they're taking, they give their answers and I can't give such definite feedback because their answers could very well be better than the one that any ones I could come up with, or they might be following a whole different track in the logic of it. So that's what I do with students. You also asked me about faculty though, what I do. And that actually requires a fairly full workshop where I ask people to engage in the critical thinking. That is, it's not going to be primarily me talking. So uh, one of them to go back to the elements of reasoning, I ask them, faculty, to take a question or problem that students need to think their way through in the course and to analyze it by going around the circle of elements. So what's its purpose? So suppose we're doing cognitive dissonance, right? What's the purpose of explicating cognitive dissonance, right? What are the assumptions we make? What are the implications and consequences? I'm going around the circle again. And um, I ask teachers to do that. And I begin by saying, oftentimes when we teach, we don't think of it as questions or problems students need to, to think their way through. We think of topics. And if we, if we use the term topics, then chances are the pronoun I use is I. What's the next topic that I, the teacher, that I have to cover? And this will invite you to take that same topic and turn it instead as a question or problem that your students need to think their way through. It's actually very successful. And here's one of the ways it's very successful is that, well, I have my students in classes analyze marriage, like whom should I marry? Or if you already know the person, should I marry X? To me, that's a 
terrific critical thinking question. Sometimes with older students, we do, should I divorce X, which I think is also a really good critical thinking question. And notice, whom should I marry is not exactly a problem to be solved. Sure. Right? Yeah. So when I was writing my second book, I thought, wow, that would make a good example, good example for me to use in my book. I had actually never analyzed marriage around the circle. So I did it for my book and I found it hard to do. It's interesting because I know these the elements of reasoning really well, and I know marriage really well. And that's the experience that many people have in their own discipline. So they're in their own discipline and they're analyzing cognitive dissonance or, or government or anything, whatever's a, they've chosen as an important question or problem or issue or topic. And they find it challenging. And it's interesting to take these words from the elements of reasoning that are all very familiar English words and apply them to something that you know inside and out right. and to find that be challenging. That's, that's kind of enlightening. Sure. What yeah. do you think is happening there with the challenge or struggle you're seeing the faculty experience? Yeah, it's a kind of bringing up, not quite from the unconscious, but from deeper layers, stuff <laughs> that, I have never articulated before. And there, there's also this phenomenon in which, so I'll ask for a volunteer at a workshop. This has to do now with the standards. I'll ask for a volunteer and I'll say, no harm will come to you. I'm just gonna be asking you some questions. So say something important in, that you would say to your students about or within the discipline. And they say something. And of course, I'm not in most of these disciplines and they'll say something. And then I'll ask them some questions from the standards. Like, well, what makes that a very difficult problem? That's a question about complexity. Or what are some of the details of that? Or could you give me a little more specific account of it? Or could you give me an example of it? Those are questions directly from the standards of critical thinking. And what happens is, I mean, there's, we're not engaged in a visual right now, but what yeah. happens is there is this pause, sometimes a long pause, in which I'll ask the question, what makes that a difficult problem? And the faculty member will say, um, You're hearing the silence, yeah, and you can see the you can see it on their face. And I tell people afterwards that's critical thinking in action. So it, they're good questions; they provoke critical thinking. And yet, this person is never in trouble, never, right. because they know the situation and the topic really well. Sure. So it it makes you call up what you have, what's there underneath, but has been unarticulated. Similarly, another thing I do in workshops to ask, uh, what do I do with faculty is S-E-E-I. Mm. And I do that because it's immediately usable as a technique. So I ask them to take some concept they're already familiar with. And I usually choose one like learning or teaching. What's your concept of teaching? Mm -hmm. State it clearly and concisely, elaborate on it give a good example of teaching and give an illustration for it. And what that does is it focuses their thinking on teaching. So they know what teaching is, of course they do, but it brings this level of focus. And I become more convinced that a good deal of the way critical thinking works in practice is by focus. So I make assumptions, but when I focus on my assumptions, it's very different, more productive. Yeah, that's very helpful. Gerald, how does critical thinking apply to military matters? I know that's a very broad question, but um, how would you start to tackle it? 
Well, I'd say it applies to it completely. I mean, how could it be that something this important, this dangerous, with so many widespread consequences, dangerous to engage in for soldiers, for civilians, for people all over the place, dangerous for policy, something that's fraught with so much weight, how could that be anything other than needing critical thinking? A good deal of critical thinking is, is of course already in it, but the critical thinking in it can improve to a great degree. So I've answered it only in a very general way for your general question, but I would say it's at all levels. I mean, just if I just go back to the questioning part, right? I need to ask what's meant by this, right? How can we plan this? How can we search for alternatives? How likely are those alternatives to work out? What are some of the complexities of the situation? I mean, one of the things I always get impressed by with regard to wars, especially kind of voluntary wars, but any kind of wars is that the, the way they work out is never the way you plan for them to work out. And I think, I don't know, Frederick the Great or something, some, someone said that about a battle, that all your plans go out the window once battle gets engaged, once it started. But I'm, I'm not talking about that. I just mean the consequences go all over the place in a ways that, that you couldn't possibly take account of fully to begin with. But you can take account of them more and just the fact that wars have these enormous consequences for society would lead you to engage in them, even, even maybe very minor ones, yeah. uh, engage in them much more judiciously than you might otherwise if you, if you thought, well, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. You, know, you mentioned critical thinking applying at all levels, and I also take that to mean you know, throughout a chain of command, you know, yeah. from the, the most junior uh, members of an organization to the most senior, and thinking specifically, say, about the Marine Corps, an organization I, I do a lot of work with. In your mind, when's the best time to start teaching critical thinking or cultivating that in, let's say, Marines? You know, do we need Marines, privates to, to think critically? Because you've got a lot of folks who say a Marine private's job is to, you know, give instant and willing obedience to orders and you want that person to execute. You don't want them to think critically in the heat of the moment. So I think where we get with the military or let's say emergency services, police or whatever, when there are quick decisions or quick actions that need to be taken, you don't have a lot of time. How does critical thinking fit into to all of this? Yeah, you gave me the example earlier of someone, of the officer saying, kick down that door and you don't want the person to think critically right, about it. Right, right. You want them to kick down the door. And that seems exactly right. It seems exactly right, especially given your description of it. It's urgent, right? It's, it's, uh, it's a thing you need to do immediately. And in those situations, I, I think it's exactly right. That's not the time to pause and think critically about it. But I also think those are only certain orders are like that. Probably not the majority of orders are like that. I mean, if, if I picture what the soldier has to do after the door is kicked in, they have to evaluate the situation. They have to decide whether to go right or left. They have to decide who's a com combatant and who's not. So they have to make a lot of, in effect, critical thinking decisions, and they have to make them very quickly. The quickness doesn't mean that it's not critical thinking. It means you've thought out a great deal of this ahead of time. And part of that is in, is in your training. 
So that's one aspect. But the other one is that, yeah, I, I can see why it's important for the soldier to follow the order immediately and willingly, but it's also important for the soldier to understand the order, right? And um, that requires critical thinking. That means I have to interpret what you mean. Robert E. Lee, though a famous general, though, I mean, though a, a very adept general, is kind of famous for giving out these very vague orders to his sub-commanders. And one of the reasons he likes Stonewall Jackson is that Jackson was very good at understanding what, what Lee meant. So I need to understand the order. And that is a matter of critical thinking. Mm. I mean, kicking the door is straightforward. I don't have to do much understanding. But I'm also told by people in the military that, that it's not like in the movies, that everything an officer says to you is in effect an order. Uh, it's not just when I says I say I order this, which I hear is just a movie kind of cliche. Mm -hmm. um, but that means I've got to go around understanding what's meant much of the time. Or, sure. or consider the orders you give to, I'm imagining this, to a sniper. It's to protect the operation. But think of how much judgment has to go into that at all right. levels. So I agree with that. And it's just an instance that the pause that might accompany critical thinking is not always something you should in engage in. Of course not. I mean, if there's a, an accident on the highway ahead of you, you're going to hope you've internalized, steer your car to the right, if possible, rather than to the left possibly getting into oncoming traffic. But how you turn to the right versus the left is having beforehand learned or thought through or understood why going to the right is safer than going to the left. But at that moment, it's like that. You're yeah. going you to do it seemingly instinctively. Yeah. But of course, there's no instinct to go to the right rather than the left. Um, yeah. It's something we learn. This, this idea of the pause and the, when to when to take it, when it's appropriate to think critically, when it's not in these high stakes situations, whether it's in a firefight or you're a doctor in an ER room, that sort of thing seems to come up quite a bit in, mm -hmm. in the work that I've done with Marines, where they'll throw out these hypothetical situations and say, well, would you want us thinking critically here? And I mean, they're, they're good hypotheticals to think through. And in some you know, there, there may be that opportunity to do it and others, no, you should just be executing. And at this point, you know, critical thinking may be counterproductive because it slows you down and gives the enemy an opportunity. And right now you need to, to focus on action, on doing something, on affecting something out there, you know, in the world. Do you think there are unique challenges to thinking critically in the military? Oh, depends on, on, the uniqueness of it. One impediment that's, that I, I would see in, in, mil, in the military, or especially maybe in military education, is not unique to the military. It's, it's, it's in common with education, whether military or not, and it's that there's a culture of education which often goes directly against critical thinking. It's the, it's the one view is that I uh, give you the information, and so learning is really about receiving information from someone who has the knowledge, right. and that's a that's a a major culture of education still. And actually, when you hear things from someone, we can say you know it afterwards, but there's a very real sense in which often you don't. You can see that by how quickly people forget what they've learned in school. 
studies of it show that students forget, I think, 70% of what they learn in a course inside of six months. And that's not just because it's a course in something you're uninterested in, it's even in the things that you're interested in. And a major thing that helps you, even just remembering things, we're interested in a lot more than remembering, but even if all you were interested in was remembering, a major way to remember stuff is to understand it, sure. not just to hear it from somebody. Right. So the culture of education gets in the way. And, but another one I think that is maybe more unique is that more unique to the military is that many times people are very conscious of how much there is on the line, mm. how much, how much risk there is, how much danger, what, how severe the implications and consequences are. If I teach sociology or history or physics, not that much is on the line immediately. But if I teach someone to engage in, in a firefight, an actual battle, very much is on the line. And, and though the consciousness of that can get lost amidst the bureaucracy and of the day-to-day -day life and of the boredom of waiting for those, those moments, still there's a consciousness often, I'd say almost most of the time, that these are life or death situations often, not just for the soldier, but for others as well, for other for other soldiers and um it means that i want to make it as safe as possible and a way we humans often operate when wanting to make things safe is by giving edicts right here's what you do here's what you see it in parents all the time and parents are very adept at telling their children what to do and children are very adept at not it's often not doing that sometimes consciously ignoring it but at least forgetting it when, sure. when it comes up. So. We talked uh, a little bit about the role of time in critical thinking. And would you agree that you know, critical thinking is hampered by the fact that we have to stop at some point, we have to stop considering points of view, source of information, et cetera, and we have to act in, in the world? And I guess, when do we know we've thought critically enough? Enough, right? Right. Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, you, you, you can't know that with any degree of sure. certainty. And uh, I wouldn't say there's a time for us to think critically and a time for us not to think critically, like in uh, emergency situations. I would phrase it as thinking you need to think critically about those situations ahead of time. So if you operate, an you operate an emergency vehicle, it's not as if you're operating without critical thinking. You're operating on the basis of critical thinking that you've already done. And you're following out the mandates of that. So you're not taking the time now to rethink it because you've already thought it through. And now you're taking maybe a little bit of time to adapt it to the specifics of the situation. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't phrase it as a time when critical thinking is inappropriate or, or doesn't fit the situation. I might be able to think of an example where it would be a time not to engage in critical thinking, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. At least mm -hmm. humans, I mean, if I think of cockroaches, you, I lived in New Orleans where cockroaches are all over the place. I mean, you turn on the light and the cockroach zooms off under a counter. And I think the cockroach would not be better off if it considered, well, should I go left or should I go right? Yeah. <laughs> Just go. Just get out. Yeah, get out of view. Sure. Right. The, 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 the 
the quality of thinking is less important than just acting and doing <laughs> something. Since critical thinking requires asking questions that expose, explore biases and assumptions, would you agree that in the context of organizations like the military that critical thinking carries with it a somewhat subversive quality? Uh, yeah, and I'd say no, or I'd say no more than in any other area. Or I might say, well, it depends on what you mean by subversive. Mm -hmm. Sometimes things sub appear subversive when they're actually improvements. So I can subvert the standard way of teaching military operations by suggesting other ways that work better, but I don't, I don't think that's what's meant by subversion. There is the question of asking deep, maybe philosophical questions about things underneath, and that can open up areas that you haven't considered, but I don't, I don't see that as a, as a standard thing that good critical thinkers often do. So concrete example, there were in India in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, there were plenty of good, strong, critical thinkers. I'm not going to name them, but Nehru and among others. And they were looking for ways of achieving independence. But Gandhi, I think, fits the mold of subversive really well. I mean, he thought of a way, he engineered ways of overthrowing the system that turned out to be very successful. But he's only one. Of, the, of those people. Other people were excellent critical thinkers and were not subversive at all. And besides, you can be subversive without being a critical thinker at all. Sure. I mean, there are, and there are plenty of those people around. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. Yeah. How can we start to apply critical thinking to understanding America's, I'd say, disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan? I mean, where would you start with that? How would we start to apply critical thinking to it? Yeah, and I have to say I don't have I don't have access to the to the information that the decision makers had about that. Sure. And I don't have I don't have any understanding of the assumptions they were making or how reasonable those assumptions were. What we have is an outcome, a disastrous outcome. But the way I often begin workshops is by asking people, what's something you thought through critically? And give me an example of something you have not thought through critically. And people write their answers. But then I ask them the critical thinking question. And it is, how do you tell? How do you tell that this is one you thought through critically and one you have it? And about 60 to 70% of the time, the way people tell is by outcome. That is, if the decision turned out well, people conclude that they thought it through critically. If it turned out badly or disastrously, they conclude they didn't think it through well. Outcome is an indicator, but it's not a surefire indicator. Whether something turns out well or badly or disastrously depends on a huge number of factors other than my critical thinking. So about a disaster like Afghanistan, I can't really tell how reasonable the decision was ahead of time. I mean, there's just a great deal of complexity to it. When I hope to get an, a good answer to that is maybe 30 years from now when military historians start to write about it and we have access to a lot more of the information. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What, so that's my, yeah. I was just going to say one thing that I, I found interesting in your response is you started to ask questions about the gaps in information you had. You know, I don't have the information available to. Uh, or that was available to the decision makers. I don't know what the assumptions were. So 
you were going through, it sounds like, (laughs) you know, the elements as a means of identifying the gaps in your knowledge and what would you need to know in order to make this analysis or order to think critically about this particular question. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, very much so. And even, even that, even uh, what I said, like, I don't have access to the information they had. This is a decision not made by one person. This is made by a whole bunch of people. And they will often have very different information and they'll put emphasis on information in very different ways. So even having the information can be misleading. The way people talk about whether Roosevelt knew about the bombing of Pearl Harbor Mm -hmm. ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And there are cases made but even if that such a statement had appeared on his desk and he actually read it, that doesn't show that he knew about it ahead of time. Depends on how often he's gotten false messages right. and what were the 150 other messages on the same sheet that were in front of him. So it's very difficult to tell even what information a person had at any given time, much less multiple people and much less my distance from them in this case. That uh, makes total sense. Yeah. At the Marine Corps School of Infantry West in Camp Pendleton, there's a new course for infantry Marines. And in this course, they've got Marine privates playing chess, ostensibly to develop their critical thinking skills. What connections, if any, exist between playing chess and developing your, your ability to think critically? Yeah, unfortunately, I just wrote a blog on, on this and uh, I, I can't be very uh, polite about it. I'll strive to be polite about it. I think there's no relation at all. There's this movie called Critical Thinking in which uh, the teacher, the sign on the door says critical thinking, but it's about chess, right? Um, So I don't see it as helpful in critical thinking at all. I mean, there are 64 squares. There are definite pieces. They can move in only certain ways. There are very definite rules. This is completely different from a military situation. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm on the same page for what it's worth. And I think I've, I've talked about it elsewhere, but I think there are better tools that we could employ to get after critical thinking. It's not a bad thing. You know, I, I don't think it's necessarily hurting anybody, but I, I think there's ways to maximize training time and, and encouraging critical thinking that don't involve moving pawns around and I mean so much of it it's it's a closed system there is a definite number of moves you can make a lot of people are just memorizing where you know certain defenses are opening gambits and things like that and I don't think there's a whole lot of critical thing I think what often happens is people confuse what's taking place on the board and the thinking that the players the privates are undergoing as critical thinking I think it's a, a misunderstanding Yeah, and also it's a perfect, it's called a perfect knowledge game in that both players see all the moves all the time. And that's nothing like a real situation like getting along with your brother-in-law. So I would say, if you have to choose a game, I would say poker is much more like critical thinking because I have to read my opponents. I I have to figure out some risks and calculate the risks. Poker is not a good analogy, but I think it's better than chess. It involves more variables. Yeah, it reminds me that I hadn't heard of that term, the perfect knowledge game, but 
that reminds me of a concept in in military matters of the fog of war and the idea that there are wars full of all of these unknowns uh, all of these ambiguities things that may be true there's some evidence but there's also contradicting evidence and in chess i know exactly where the opponent's pieces are i know their components it is a truly symmetrical game right Right. it's not like their pawns get to move an extra space well, my pawns uh, can move diagonally all the time. You know, there's no asymmetries and the real world is full of asymmetry. Uh, Even between opponents who you may describe as conventional, they're not organized the same. Culturally, they're different. Their rank structure may be different. Their conceptualization of certain military things, you know, may be very different. Yeah, and there's not even a ridge with the reinforcements on the other side of the, of the ridge to come right. in. You yeah. know, all the reinforcements. Yeah, that makes total sense. What would you say to, and again, I, I, I usually put this in the context of Marines because that's the audience I deal with most, but what would you say to people who are turned off by the amount of time and, and practice of application it takes to become even comfortable with critical thinking, what would you tell them to do to help them stay the course or what tips might you provide them? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually very sympathetic with that because there's a sense in which many of us get along pretty well much of the time without using explicit critical thinking. And so it gives the feeling of that this isn't necessary And I think that's the crux rather than the time or the difficulty of it in that it's it's hard to become a Marine. It takes a lot of time to become a a well-functioning Marine. And though people object to it, they go into that voluntarily and submit themselves to it. Most things are that have any complexity to them. Most of those are hard. Learning to drive a car, though you get used to it, And then you forget how difficult it was to begin with, but it was fraught with difficulty, danger, risks all over the place and trying to keep track of all of this stuff. And then someone says, look in the rear view mirror and you think, oh, Oh, I can do that too. I remember, I remember, yeah. (laughs) You really, yeah. Yeah. Most people have forgotten that because we get so adept at it. As they they often forget about what they didn't know when they started out as a Marine. Right. So to me, what you have to do if you want to encourage people to, to be engaged in critical thinking, and I'm now speaking kind of as a teacher, is I, I need to, to ask them to do something that will be using critical thinking and will be meaningful to them, that will be enlightening for them. It's different from something where I'm asking them to do something and I say it's meaningful, the way teachers always said, learning algebra is meaningful. And uh, I don't, don't know that's true because uh, but but so I have to give them something that they would judge as meaningful. <clears throat> so, for instance, in my class, just to go with assumptions again, I'll ask my students early on. So, what's an assumption that your best friends make about you? That's an assignment for you to write out a little and only share with the other with the class or with me ones that are that you feel are not personal violations of you. So, what are some assumptions your friends make about? You know, and many of my students come away kind of shaken by it because they realize that the assumptions many of their friends make about them are very different from their own reality. And so it's kind of enlightening and they get it by just looking for assumptions on this particular topic. 
And then I ask them, what are some assumptions you make about your friends? And to what extent do you think that those are, are true, are really good assumptions to, to make? So it, it's an example of doing something that seems to that person to be directly beneficial and uses critical thinking. Uh, without that, it, it seems very much like it can be, it's just something maybe imposed by the teacher. Sure. It's also coupled with the fact that the traditional method of teaching where I'm a teacher and I say stuff to you, there's some stuff and I say the stuff to you and, you're, and then I give you an exam and it's your job to say the stuff back to me. That's much easier, right? And we're used to it. I know exactly how to study for that exam. I read over and over and get maybe make electronic flashcards of love the stuff. But if you're asking me a question where I have to apply this stuff to a whole new area, I don't have that safe way of studying for it. Sure. So that that makes the, the laborious, makes critical thinking seem more laborious. Yeah. Also the thing though that, most of us, at least some of the time, do engage in critical thinking. I mean, we compare one set of one piece of electronic equipment with another, and we do that by comparing prices, information. We look up reputable sources, or we try to, about how well they function. So we do engage in critical thinking about some things, but many things we, we don't. It's funny you mention that because so often in the work I do with Marines, when I introduce them to the standards and the elements, many will react with surprise saying, oh, that's what you call this thing I've been doing for as long as I can remember. Or, you know, that's that's a name. Oh, okay, here's what we mean by conclusions or here's what we mean by purpose. Right. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, it's reassuring that they have that experience because it's not totally alien. It's not totally foreign and new we're giving labels to things that you may already be doing and then maybe making you aware of some other things that you're not doing or you're not taking into account that would benefit you. Right, right. Yeah, one of the things that I think that's, that's very positive, but in addition, there's this explicitness that's involved in critical thinking where you, you don't just identify your assumptions, you yeah explicitly look for assumptions you explicitly look for implications and consequences you explicitly look for implications and consequences other than the ones that come naturally right. to mind and you're right. clear on the hunt for them you're, you're, you're actively searching them out and, and yes. trying to trying to ferret them out sure can we measure critical thinking and if so how have, have you seen any attempts to do this is this something i'm sure is something you've talked with Richard and Linda about quite a bit. Yeah, we have some tests. They're very imperfect as all the standard critical thinking tests are. I was once uh, two years ago in Europe at the prehistoric caves area of France and Spain. And I met this woman who had been a provost at, well, I don't wanna say the university, but a prominent major California university and I told her I was in critical thinking. And she said, yeah, as if you could teach people critical thinking. And I was, I was just shocked. And then afterwards I thought, how could she be thinking of that? And I think it must be that she's thinking of critical thinking as kind of this block, this mm. thing, this unified thing. And I wanna teach it to someone. And uh, the real question is, can I teach people to think more critically than they do now? Mm. And then the question about measurement is, can I measure their improved 
thinking. And the fact is that teachers who teach for critical thinking do this all the time. It's not nationally normed because there are difficulties in doing that that I can talk about if you ask. But here's a question. Suppose I want my students to identify assumptions in, it, uh, in what they read or decisions they make. Are they better at identifying assumptions if they've been taught how to identify assumptions or if they haven't been taught that, or if that never came up as a topic in class at all? Mm -hmm. And it's clear that they're better if they're taught yeah. how to do it and, how, and practice doing it. So notice, you can measure it straightforwardly. If identifying assumptions is an important part of critical thinking, then I can measure their improvement very directly and straightforwardly. I think where people go wrong is they think of it as this big thing. I mean, can we teach people scientific thinking? Well, I mean, in all, in all countless studies, people are very bad at thinking scientifically. Right? I mean, and I'm not sure how good those studies are. Some of them seem to me off track, but it's not as if taking multiple courses in science as people do through elementary school, secondary school, and if they go to a university, through the university, it's not as if they come away with scientific thinking. They don't. Can we measure their improvement in scientific thinking? Well, yeah, but really what we're measuring is can I get them to think more scientifically than they did before? And I'll have to do that by finding questions that map into that. But so it's true, not just of scientific thinking, it can be of sociological thinking, it can be of military thinking. Can you teach people military thinking? Well, that makes it seem, I mean, it depends what level you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It depends if you're a planner, if you're an executor, <laughs> it depends on whether you're in your artillery or, an, or right. a pilot. Right. Or, uh, um, but clearly people are better at thinking militarily when they've been taught to do so. And I can measure that fairly straightforward way. Interesting. Yeah. You use, I also use these in, in my work, but you use fundamental and powerful concepts. Right. Could you tell us what, and we'll call those FPCs for short, could you tell us what FPCs are and how might they apply to military schooling and training, such as the artillery officers or, or the pilots who are teaching, you know, would be soon to be pilots or artillery officers? Yeah, fundamental and powerful concepts are the concepts I use in my book in critical thinking in a discipline. So a problem in teaching students a discipline or a field or an area is that there's so much content. And to students, all this content appears as detail after detail after detail. There's no way for them to bridge from one detail to another or to see things as fitting together. If you look at uh, key concepts in a, in a textbook in any field, they're listed in only one of two ways. Either they're listed kind of at the end of a chapter, there's a bunch of key concepts, they're listed alphabetically where they're listed in the order in which they occur in the chapter. Hmm. They're listed alphabetically. There's, that means there's no way, there's no relationship between one concept and the next, except that they both begin with the same letter. <laughs> and if they're listed in the order in which they occur in the book, it means that important concepts and really trivial minor concepts are listed just the same way. So right. students don't have any idea of what's most important in the class. So fundamental and powerful concepts are a way of thinking through a complex but unified body of information, of discipline. It's a way of teaching content. 
So I'll give you, a, let me give you a non-military example. I worked on key with this with some faculty and there's a, a teacher at, at a Kentucky university who taught physics and he changed the entire way of teaching physics. This is what he says to his students. It's a 16 week long course. And he says, okay, for the six week, first six weeks, we're gonna focus on only three concepts. It's gonna be energy, force and matter. We're gonna focus on those entirely. Then during the remainder 10 weeks of class, you, not me, you are gonna use those three concepts to think through everything else. The way sound moves, the way planets move, the way light operates. So those are fundamental and powerful concepts, meaning it means all of these disparate phenomena are no longer unrelated. Right. I can think them through. So a fundamental and powerful concept is a concept that I can use to think through almost all the rest of the discipline. And it's some work for teachers to, co to come up with ones that really fit well, but just with a little bit of working on it, they come up with one. And this is actually one of the most transformative parts of a workshop I give. So let me give a stab at it for <laughs> military. What, did, what, what were the examples well, you gave? I think you? I gave, you know, uh, military pilots or artillery officers, you know. Hey, and if, if I've got good fundamental and powerful concepts, it should work for both because they're very similar at base. They have a very similar logic. And so here's my stab at it. I would say three fundamental and powerful concepts. One is overall objective. What's the objective? I have to think through everything in terms of the objective. Second, what are the means at my disposal, all right? What are the ways I can go toward that objective? And then the third one is gonna be risks or impediments, right? What's gonna get in the way or what untoward things might happen, take account of those. So if I'm a pilot, I'm gonna think of, so what are my goals or my planes on fire? What are my goals at this moment? What are the means at my disposal? What are the risks and what are the impediments? If I'm an artillery officer, I'm gonna be thinking of, okay, what are the objectives? Maybe not strategic objectives if I'm an artillery officer, but tactical objectives. What are my objectives? How can I help achieve them? What are the means? And what are the impediments? What are the things that are getting in the way? So the idea behind those is that if I keep those in mind, I have a way of thinking through an enormous number of military issues, problems, situations, even with how do I get along with my fellow soldiers? Right. So what, what are my goals in doing this? Right. What are the means at my disposal? What can I do to make relationships better, more fruitful, especially in times of combat? And what are the things that are getting in the way? That helps me think through. Notice these are completely different areas, a plane on fire right. or making a good environment with my fellow soldiers in the barracks, say, those seem like entirely separate. They, they're all built on those three fundamental and powerful concepts. At least that's my stab at it. I don't want to give the impression that those are the only three that you could choose, sure. but there's going to be a limited number that you could choose that will work this way. I think that raises some great points. And you even mentioned that teachers will often have trouble or they have had trouble. You've witnessed them have trouble coming up with FPCs. How do you go about determining the FPCs of a domain or a discipline are, are these things that we find experts disagreeing on. You know, if you've got a room full of chemists and you say, without talking to your neighbor, write down mm. the the top three FPCs in, in mm -hmm. chemistry. Do you think that you would find a lot of variation among the answers? 
Well, I, I actually do that a lot. And uh, I find some variation, but I find actually very little. And after a little bit of quizzing by me, they will amend theirs. Mm. And the way the, here's how the variation takes place. It partly depends on how deep they want or expect their students to think about it. So uh, with chemistry, I'm, I'm not in chemistry, but I, I can make it up. I may want my students to think in terms of molecules and interactions among molecules. Those might be two of them, and there might be one or two others in addition. Some other teachers might say, well, molecules are really a byproduct of electrons revolving around a nucleus. So really, it's the electronic shell of an electron that's the fundamental and powerful concept. So you can see there's a difference in depth. And that second one that I just said seems to me to be suitable for a very advanced student. Mm -hmm. And the one in terms of compound would be even an introductory student to chemistry. So I see disagreements. But, but sometimes people go off and say things that, to my mind, are not really fundamental and powerful at all. I don't know that I have a ready example. If I could, you know, something I'll often see when asking, you know, if I've got a group of marine instructors and we're going through FPCs the first time, oftentimes they'll, they'll come up with verbs, things that you do, and it's right. not a concept or it's something concrete or very specific. And they're right. not thinking about it at a conceptual level. I'm not sure if that's something that you run yeah. into because we'll say think conceptually or think higher or right. get away from content and stuff and things. And what are the concepts, big concepts underlying right. this stuff? Because I think they get so focused on the not, you know, I'm doing air quotes right now, but the knowledge and transferring that. Uh, and, and I think the, you know, the myth of if I just say something and I'm animated enough and I've got good jokes, you know, it's, it's going to land. And it's going right, to stick. Right. Uh, um, so then getting them to pull back and go, th that stuff comes much later. We want you to focus on what you think the most important concepts to your discipline, your your piece of the war fighting pie, if you will, what those things are. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, and so what you, you said seems exactly my experience as well. People identify concrete concepts or ideas or actions as fundamental and powerful. And they're, they're often, usually, they're just too specific to, to function that way. And part of the reason they do that, I think, is that the kinds of questions we as teachers give students fall into these categories, these well-established categories. So we ask only certain kinds of questions. They're the kinds that are sanctioned by the kind of teaching I'm doing. And one of the ways I might, so I can only give you an imperfect example here because I don't have the fundamental and powerful concepts they're thinking in front of me, but they'd give me a concrete con fundamental and powerful concept. And I might ask the question, okay, so I'm a soldier. I'm in a trench in World War One, and they're are hitting me and somebody's saying over the top. And I'm thinking, what do I do? What do I do? Right. The fundamental and powerful concepts should answer that question. Hmm. But, but that's not a question that, that's going to be on the exam in right. the course. What do I do? What do I do? Whereas I, I just happened, I mean, I think I just go back to mine and that gives me a cue, right? I think, what's my objective? 
yeah, here, yeah, right? Yeah. I, I want to live. I also yeah. want to engage, engage as I'm supposed to. And what can I do? What are the means at my disposal? And what are the risks and impediments? Whereas if I say something like orders, well, that, that might be one. I don't know, but it's it's uh it doesn't it doesn't apply to the pilot who's landing the plane that's on fire. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll give you a, a follow-on example from what you just said. Someone might say, you know, I teach infantry squad leaders, or I teach infantry rifle platoon commanders, and orders are one of my FPCs. I might come back and say, you know, what are orders? They're a means of communicating. So maybe the larger, maybe the FPC is communication. And that covers a whole, it's a much wider range of situations and problems that apply to, to that field. I mean, do you, would, do you agree a, with that? Is that? It's a really nice example, Damien, uh, because uh, once you broaden it to communication, it covers not just orders, but it also covers intelligence that I'm, that I'm receiving how, right. or how I can give intelligence to others. It comes through over what's on my computer or in old days on what's coming over on the radio amid static. Right. Um, and so I have to think this through in what's, what's being communicated and how is it being communicated? Whereas orders is, is far too specific to illuminate yeah. all this, uh, the huge amount of situations that come up. Right. And I like the way you did it, too. You stepped back from orders and saw what lies behind orders. Mm -hmm. Orders are a variety of communicating. And correct me if I'm wrong, but fundamental and powerful concepts have supporting concepts or right. concepts right. below them, you know, sub concepts and yeah. orders could be a sub concept of the FPC of communication. Indeed, yes. So, yeah, when I when I take teachers through this, after we've identified, say, three fundamental and powerful concepts, then I ask them to stratify the other concepts mm -hmm. in their courses, and they get a hierarchy. Sure. So that you can see the most basic ones, that some that are less, still basic, but less basic, and those you think through using the fundamental and powerful concepts, and then there become some that are less, still less basic, and then some that are very specific, and then some that are still more specific. So you get this hierarchy and notice that a hierarchy of the, how, how fundamental and powerful concepts are is a very different way of organizing concepts than alphabetically yeah. or the order in which they happen to occur in the chapter. Do you find once you've got that hierarchy, I guess from the perspective of a teacher, if you're trying to redesign your course, your curriculum to encourage critical thinking that it, you know, that's, that's kind of a good starting point or a, a jumping off point of having that, that hierarchy of, of concepts that you can now start to translate some of that into the stuff and things and the content right. that people are so familiar and comfortable with, if that makes well, sense. You can, yeah, you can definitely just as important, maybe more important is I'm giving students a hierarchy by which th that they can use to think mm, through yeah. questions on, on upper levels. So notice if, if I stratify it this way and I got a hierarchy, it means that I can ask them questions about things on an upper level, not so fundamental and powerful level that I have not addressed in the course. And the instructions will be, think those through in terms of the fundamental and powerful concepts of the course. Yeah. And the students then will be engaged in active critical thinking within the discipline or area. Sure. 
How much you measure a student's grasp of an FPC or their ability to, as you say, work through, think through a problem using that FPC, their application of the FPC? Well, I think of that as a as fairly straightforward, at least in the abstract. And that is, I give them a new situation that they haven't encountered before. And I ask them, so this first stage, and I ask them to use those FPCs to think their way through it. And I would ask them to write out their answer because oftentimes with writing, you have to be more specific, more focused, more concentrated than you do verbally, though verbally also might work. Okay, so that's the first stage. Let some time go by. So I'm giving them, say, a definite military situation, but one that I've not talked about in class, but is like the ones that we've addressed in class. Okay, let some time go by, weeks and weeks go by. So the next time I ask them, so what would you do in this kind of situation? I give them a different situation that we also haven't addressed in class. What would you do in this situation? Or how how would you think about it? But I want you to hear I'm saying it casually. What do you think about it? What would you think about when doing this? And I don't mention any F&B concepts, right? And I see whether they use those or whether they go back to their gut, whether they go back to how they would almost instinctively do it from all their pre-military training or from earlier military training. So the, the first kind of test sees whether they have the facility of using the fundamental and powerful concepts. The second one, is more than just facility, it's whether they have a readiness, whether they have a tendency to actually do so. That's yeah. really important if I'm in the military. Yeah. You don't want people just to have this kind of theoretical knowledge and be able to answer the right way. You want them actually to do it. Yeah, yeah. that's. I'd, I'd like yeah. to uh, investigate that, try it out in the classroom. Would you discuss your personal practices of addressing blind spots, knowledge gaps, and biases, whether it's cognitive or, or otherwise, what's worked for you, what hasn't? I think I'm, I'm just kind of lucky in that I think I have, a net, I have a strong tendency to look for what it is I don't know. I've always had, and I'm also almost embarrassing to admit it, I'm enchanted by what I don't know or by what I thought I knew and it turn, turns out to be wrong. I don't mean like what's the capital of Wyoming, nothing, not something like that, but something that's deep in my life. And I find examples of that over and over again. So I work sometimes with the University of Arizona Medical School. Uh, They have a program called Medical Ignorance. It's a program on medical ignorance. And because of them, medical ignorance has actually now become an established part of medicine in medical journals. But the the focus of it is, what do I not know? What do I not know? So in the 90s, so what I'm going to say to you is probably outdated. But in the 90s, I attended almost everybody there is a physician, maybe 25 or 30 of us are not, but 100 people are. So there's a panel of doctors on the stage, and they're talking about what they do not know. And those of us in the audience went away terrified because they didn't choose obscure diseases. They chose breast cancer and prostate cancer. And what they didn't know about breast cancer and prostate cancer was huge. What they did know was relatively minor. So again, this might be outdated, but we people in the audience went away saying, men came away saying, well, I'm not going to have any more prostate exams. And women came away saying, I'm not going to have any more mammograms. They don't know what to do with the results when they get it. Now, the people on the stage were the head of the AMA, the dean of Yale Medical School, the editor of the journal of JAMA, Journal of Medical Association. So these were, these are not just your coroner physician. These were top flight major physicians. So 
the theme is what do I not know? And think of it, that's a major thing you want your doctor to be aware of. So that's been my inroad. And luckily for me, it pans out all over the place. And I say luckily for me, because for many people, I'll say for my students, they're very afraid of making mistakes or getting things wrong. I will often ask them, so who did this wrong? (laughs) Who gave an answer that that turns out to be unreasonable. Would you read it to the class? And, uh, and you know, people look down and uh, don't meet my eye. Uh, but if I wait long enough, I will get some people who will do it. And then afterwards, I'll say, I don't always say this in public because I don't want to embarrass them, but I'll say, I want you to hear, it takes great intellectual courage to stand up in front of fellow students and say, here's what I did. I thought it was, and it was, I was really way off. Right. And it's incredible intellectual humility to do that. I mean, you learn a lot more from getting things wrong than you do from getting them right. And uh, I get already by the third week of my course, I'll get students saying, I've got a good wrong answer. I've got a good wrong answer. (laughs) So (laughs) they kind of uh, take on some of that delight in having done something mistaken. So that's in my personal practice, that's what that's the one I use, Intell- uh, search for intellectual humility. And, and the other one is search for the other side. It's something I do almost automatically and sometimes in situations where it seems inappropriate. So mm-hmm. I'll say, so if I'm really on one, on one side of a political issue, really strong, I have intense, strong feelings, I will often ask myself, so how do the other side think about it. I mean, it's it's not as if there are unreasonable people on the other side. There might be some who are unreasonable, but there are a lot of reasonable people who are on the other side of every major issue I'm in favor. How are they thinking about it? And I bring this up in conversation and sometimes people are kind of aghast that because yeah. it sounds as if I'm defending them and I'm not really defending them. I'm not, not opposing them at that time either, but it's often, it's often enlightening, like not getting a, a vaccination. I, I mean, I, I, I got bol- my bolster shot and I've gotten vaccination. I believe in vaccination, but I can think my way through how someone would, in a fairly reasonable way, a way that I think is incorrect, though, mm-hmm. in a fairly reasonable way, come to the conclusion that I, I, uh, I'm not going to get vaccinated. I, I think that the, yeah, the information does not lead me in that direction. So looking for the other side is a really important one. I, I think that's so key to being successful in a military context. I mean, if you're fighting an enemy, if there's right. someone you're trying to defeat, being able to see or try, right? Try to yeah. empathize, try to put yourself in their position, right. their shoes, see things from their, their vantage point. Um, and, and making that a habit, you know, right. to where right. maybe you're also doing that tactically as you're moving your troops, you're thinking, if I were the enemy, where would I put my machine guns or where would I put my, my ambush? I think critical thinking has a, a ready place or spot there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Are you familiar with the work of Nobel Prize winner Daniel Kahneman on decision making, cognitive biases and, and traps? His, his book, Thinking Fast and Slow posits that we think in two systems. System one is fast thinking. System two is slow thinking. Would you say system two is closer to critical thinking than system one is that when we're in system two thinking, we're more likely to be thinking critically? Yeah, I I think that Kahneman and Tversky's work is just brilliant all along. And slow thinking is roughly what we mean by reasoning things out 
rather than the fast thinking is much more like reacting or acting on my gut, though I have to say oftentimes acting on my gut is preceded by a considerable amount of critical or slow thinking. But I think that there, that Kahneman and, and Tversky, his partner who died, right, uh, right. that their work on heuristics is ju it's just, a, it's another way, go back to the previous question, that I often find flaws in my thinking. I go to the availability heuristic, right? Uh, that the ready answer that comes to my mind is, right. I mean, one of the reasons I think I'm right is that I get a ready example that comes immediately to mind. And I know that that's a trap or, yeah, yeah. or, or that or that one with the Sports Illustrated fallacy that if your mm. picture appears in the cover of Sports Illustrated, your next season is going to go down. Yeah. Worse next season. And it's really just a statistical matter that yeah. you, go, you go up and down. So, so I think it's, I think it's brilliant. That said, I want to say that there's a way in which a lot of it does not help much with critical thinking. I mean, it gives me clues, it gives me inroads, but one of the things Kahneman and Tversky do not address is how do you think through something critically? How do you, what do you do to engage in what he calls slow thinking, reason things out? I mean, they show many ways in which we go wrong in a radical way. Some of those are built-in illusions that even when you're aware of them, you can't get out of, but some of them you can get out of or get out of partially, but it would be like teaching people how to engage in military operations by listing the 20 ways military operations can go wrong, mm -hmm. right? I mean, those are informative, those are helpful, but yeah. I also wanna know, how do I do it? Yeah. What do I do now? This is not really a criticism kind of in Tversky. That's not what they were, that's not what they were focused on. They were focused on these, these uh, ways in which it does go wrong that are built into us, but it doesn't serve as a good model for critical thinking as a whole for how I go about things. It's, I don't wanna mix it up with something that's really much smaller, but it's like fallacies, mm -hmm. teaching critical thinking through fallacies, ways of thinking that go wrong. Yeah. Uh, still doesn't tell me what to do. Yeah. So helpful, but not comprehensive. It's not going to give me the tools I need to right. go beyond just identifying what can go wrong, but how do I, how do I make this go right? Or how do I think correctly or, or, or well? Um, yeah. How does critical thinking apply to highly technical fields? So in my workshops, I encountered a lot of instructors who thought critical thinking had no role in entry-level technical courses like an introductory course on ground radio repair or welding. You know, you're a, you're a marine welder and that job is tools, equipment, procedures, processes, not much critical thinking, as someone may assume or, or propose What's your response to the relationship between critical thinking and, and technical fields or subjects? Yeah, I think there's a great deal of truth to what they're saying. And so if you're doing ground radio repair, I'm not sure so sure about welding, but if you're doing ground radio repair, you want people to learn these tech, the techniques of doing it and the technicalities of doing it. And you want that to become automatic or virtually automatic. I'm thinking, I'm guessing this is the goal. Yeah. On the, on the other hand, you also want people to think critically about it in a certain sense. The way I would teach it is I would also have people work on, so what, what's a frequent way ground radio repair goes wrong? 
what's a complication that comes up in it? So you're learning all these techniques, but this doesn't account for all the situations in which ground radio repair needs to take place. So what are some of the ways in which it could go wrong? And I would want my students to think about those, to identify some, but I would also want to have done that and bring that to them and then say, and so what would you do about that? And for some of these, it may be that the exact techniques, especially very specific techniques, are not going to address the question. And something very similar with welding, I mean, welds go wrong a considerable portion of the time. Sure. So, and I, I guess it's true that if people followed out the instructions perfectly, the welding would not go wrong as often as it does, but it doesn't seem to me very realistic to think that people are going to follow the instructions right. perfectly. And I'm not at all clear that drilling people and following those instructions is the best way of getting their, them to, to do it. That yeah. said, a lot of things in our life are like this. I mean, we, we, you don't have to think about walking. I mean, you just or riding your bike, you just engage in them. And, and if you think about, if you're a baseball player and you think about your swing too much, it can interfere with your swing, right? So a lot of things, it's not just technical matters that are like that. It's our, it's our ordinary ones where we get used to it. But there's a sense in which I do think critically about my walking in certain circumstances, if it's one where, if it's a situation where bad things might happen if, right. I, if I do it my ordinary way. So Yeah, and we, we found after asking questions or you know, just using the, the knowledge of some of the staff, you dig a little deeper and you find out that welders at marine units are often on their own or they're in very small groups and they're meant they kind of operate on their own so now you're talking about uh -huh. asking good questions of the command to make sure that you're supporting it effectively making sure that you're a good advocate for what you can do for the command what problems you can solve and cannot solve and i think what ends up happening is the technical becomes just this this forest that they're lost in, and they they can't see the forest for the trees, right? They, they're 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 so again down in the weeds and the stuff and things, and we're saying, but this technical stuff takes place in a human context of interaction and organizations interacting, individuals interacting, communication happening. So critical thinking has a role to play in all of these areas right that that it's not just the the technical side of what you do you you're in a very human enterprise or or activity yeah and i remember so when, when i was a graduate student i got a side job and did a little little welding not very proficiently but did a little bit of welding and i just remember learning that if you weld a large gasoline tank it needs to be full hmm. of gas rather than empty and that seems so counterintuitive to me sure. until I got to understand why it is, because the one that's empty is full of fumes. The one that's full is full of gas, and gas is not particularly explosive as a liquid. It's the fumes that are coming off. It's the vapor that's coming off. Well, well, that it helps a lot to understand that, not just be given the rule right. that I might get. Never and right. <laughs> never weld a, a full gas gasoline tank yeah just a rule that might slip my mind oh i got a lot of rules right, right. <laughs> who are some great role models for critical thinking be it leaders historical figures scholars yeah and uh the difficulty with the question it's a good question but it's a, it's it, it's difficult in that we're all human beings 
and we all have strengths and weaknesses and times in our lives when we are engaging critical thinking and times in our lives where we maybe fall away radically, both from critical thinking and from what we believe in. So I might say that I might say standard ones like Gandhi is a good critical thinker. I recently read though that when he was younger, but still a full-fledged adult with a 20-year-old son, I mean, he's Hindu and his son fell in love with a Muslim woman, woman and Gandhi forbade him to marry a Muslim woman, which is completely contrary to what he was like later, saying this would be a betrayal of India for him to do it. I was shocked. How could this be Gandhi? Yeah. But, but then reflecting on it, I realized we're all different at different stages of our lives sure. and the way people are at one time. So any person I name, I would have to name in this respect or in that right, respect. Right. This time, you have to qualify yeah. during these years or, you know, in this position, but later yeah. on or earlier in their life or their career, they, they took a turn and there's a sense of, uh, there's no constancy of right. critical thinking. Right. Would Nelson Mandela have been a better critical thinker if he tried to escape before they sent him off to Robbins Island? And I don't know, that would be the decision I would want to make if I were in his position. Yeah. But but again, I don't know much of the circumstances. So that's, that's not a right or wrong decision. It's a more it's a more productive decision versus a less productive decision that, that I'm bringing into question. Um, Are there any critical thinking practitioners or scholars whose work right now really excites you? And could you tell us about it? You know, we have the, the Foundation for Critical Thinking has these uh, thinker's guides. So they're thinker's guides to basic central concepts of critical thinking, one on analytic thinking, but we have some of these that are related to areas like the Thinker's Guide to Historical Thinking or to Clinical Reasoning or to Scientific Thinking. And uh, this doesn't exactly address your question, but I can say I would love to have one on military thinking. I mean, it would just be a great idea to have a thinker's guide to military thinking where you incorporate the elements of reasoning and the standards of critical thinking into military thinking. That would be something I would I would be full of admiration yeah. for. I was just going to say, I think the services could use something like that as well. I know that at places like Command and Staff College, I'm talking about Marine Corps schools, the College of Enlisted Military Education, they use the miniature guide to, right. to critical thinking. I think, though, that there may be challenges sometimes in translating those to Indeed. a military context. So a, gu a guide like this, I think, would, would do wonders. Right. Yeah. You've written that critical thinking isn't emotionless, that emotion plays a, a key role in our thinking, motivation, even provides useful data for critical thinking. This seems very counterintuitive in, I think, a lot of people's eyes. Could you speak to this stance? Yeah, just as background, I could say biologically, it seems extremely unlikely that something as basic as emotions would not help intrinsically to help humans survive. <laughs> it seems hard to believe that you could take something that central to the way we exist, put it aside and have us be better off without it. That's just a background mm -hmm. statement. But more specifically, yeah, our emotions help us all the time. Think of how fear alerts us to things. Um, I mean, if I had a military commander who was, as they say, fearless, but really did not feel any fear, I'd be very worried because mm -hmm. I want that person to have a very good, solid sense of the risks that the troops are undergoing, that the enemy is undergoing, of the dangers that are around in a good wheel, that way that comes to us. And the way that comes to us forcefully is through a 
recognition of is through the fear that comes. Oh my God, this might go wrong. Mm -hmm. Oh, this might happen. That's fear operating. It mm -hmm. helps. Here's, here's another example that I often use, not a military one. So think of a good critical thinking mother who's raising a child. By critical thinking mother, what I mean is she thinks about what's best for the child, what's best for the family, thinks of original things for the child to be engaged in that are gonna be helpful, that are gonna be enjoyable. So she's an all around good critical thinking mother. So is she gonna be a better mother if she loves the child or if she's neutral? <laughs> it, it seems very clear that, sure, that sure. loving is gonna help. Right. <laughs> so I think people say that because they have in mind certain emotions at certain times. Rage is an emotion that gets in the way of my thinking, right? It cuts it off and I just engage in bald rage. Anger is not that way though. Anger, I can feel anger. I can feel justifiable anger and that can impel me toward action that I wouldn't go toward otherwise. I have to weigh in a lot of other factors. It's one of the reasons I like using marriage as an example in my classes because if you're gonna marry somebody, you certainly better start thinking about the emotions that are involved. I mean, what would it be like to just, just consult their scores on the SATs? Um, <laughs> right, completely remove any sort of yeah. idea of emotion and, and you know, it's just cold hard data, you know, marriage yeah. by statistics. Right, and, and, and just off to the side uh, is the work by Damasio and others, which say that people who have brain damage so that they're still perfectly reasoned, they reason extremely well, but their emotional centers have been lost. They're unable to make a decision because they see hundreds of alternatives in front of them and they can't decide which one to go with. So they're, they're, they reason in a way just as well, but they have no way of ordering the results mm -hmm. of their reasoning. That's done on the basis of preference, on emotions, on things like that. Wow, interesting. Yeah. Gerald, you've written a new book on critical writing. It's called Critical Writing, a Guide to Writing a Paper Using the Concepts and Processes of Critical Thinking. Could you tell us about the book and how might it be useful to service members? Yeah, it's about, uh, it's about writing a paper, but it's, it's really about writing anything. And um, so let me just say about a paper, you're going to write something in the military, or you're going to write something for a class in the military. You got to come up with a, an idea. There's a, a main thing that you, you're going to be saying, and you have to figure out what that main thing is, and also what the main other points are that support or explain the main thing. English teachers call that main thing a thesis statement, but that word's, that word's not important. The question is, how do you come up with that? How do you come up with that? Suppose I, I want to write about what happened in Afghanistan recently. Suppose I'm going to write a paper about that. Because it's such a broad topic. How do I come up with specific thing to say? And uh, here's the way writing teachers often tell you to do it. They tell you to brainstorm or they tell you to cluster, meaning write down some of the main words and throw them together. And all of those to be really inadequate, really hit or miss. They're really forms of hoping for the best. And if I, and even if it brainstorming works, this time, there's no reason it's gonna work the next time. It's not a repeatable kind of thing. So maybe an idea just comes to me, but for students and for others, much of the time, no answer does come to you. Yeah. So how can I get an answer? 
Well, a way to do it, again, imperfectly, but much better than this, is to work your way around the circle of elements of reasoning. You say, okay, so what are the assumptions I make about the disaster in Afghanistan? What are the further implications of it? And I write these down. What information do I have? I write that down. And I say, so what's my concept of a disaster? Um, uh, what's my concept of extricating ourselves from Afghanistan? What are some various points of view? So I go around the circle and there are eight of, the, eight of those elements, but for some of them, I'm gonna write three or four different answers, which are gonna be like sentences. What was the purpose of getting out of Afghanistan? So I end up with maybe 15 sentences in front of me categorized in these, in these eight categories. And then my contention is that for, so for about 60% of the people I work with, students or faculty, their main statement is right in there. Mm. It's one of the ones they've written down. And their main supporting points are right in there. So what they have to do is they get an aha moment and say, oh, that's the main thing I really want to say in this paper. So the 40% for whom that does not happen, what you can do is you can get the main thing by just looking at these, say, 15 statements, picking out the ones you think is of as most important. And that's the main thing you're going to be saying. Mm -hmm. Notice you got something specific and you have a structure for how to come up with it, right? Yeah. So that's about the first one. And then the second part is, how do you turn those main points in your actual paragraphs, into your actual sentences and paragraphs? And there, S-E-E-I works. Okay. You state your main point, you elaborate on it, you give a good example or two or three or four, and you give a good illustration. Yeah. And the question for students is, how do I fill the number of pages? And uh, that's, that's never a question for teachers. The, the question for teachers is, how do I cut down on the number of pages on the number of pages, right? But this is a way of filling the pages, that is, of amplifying and uh, enriching the material in a way that's relevant to what it is I want to say. Uh, so that in a in a very in a nutshell, very small nut is uh, the technique of the paper. But it's it's really a good way of writing anything. Yeah, it, no, it sounds like an excellent model, and will certainly promote the uh, the book here and include a, a link so people okay, can check it out. If you were king for a day and had complete freedom to institute critical thinking in society or take steps to encourage critical thinking, what would you do writ large you know, for society at, at large? What might you do specifically for the military? Wow, king for a day and critical thinking. Those two do not seem to sit in the same, <laughs> same team up. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what would I do? First, I think I'd do nothing too drastic because the ways in which even well-thought-out programs can go wrong are quite variable. So I didn't, I would do nothing too drastic and something that, and I would do things that would take a certain amount of time to work out the kinks and problems and perhaps disasters that might build up along the way. But the essence of what I would try to do is to try to create structures that would help support and nurture critical thinking in the military and in governments too, but I'll just confine myself to the military. Make structures that, that support it and nurture it. And what that might mean is, is a much more benevolent attitude toward Mistake making, for instance, oh, yeah. um, where the, the mis mistakes don't follow you around for your entire career and, yeah. and damn you because you've made a mistake, even if it's a bad mistake. But the 
encouragement of looking at other points of view, looking at things from multiple angles. That's a, I'm thinking of that as a structure. So I would kind of, I would try to build it into the educational system and into the, the military organization as much as possible. So, but the nothing too drastic is an important part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. If there's one thing you'd want Marines or other service members to take away from our conversation on critical thinking, what would you have that be? I would say it's the necessity of understanding what you're about, what you're doing, and that the role of question, the role questioning plays in that. Not just questioning of others, but maybe questioning primarily of myself, asking myself, what do I, what do I understand about this? What do I not understand? What do I need to do? What do I, I need not to do? I remember when uh, my son was younger and we're going to airports and everything. And he said, well, teach me how, how to go through an airport. And a, a main focus of my teaching was to was to say to him, so what questions should you be asking now, right? That it's just a good way of learning to go through an airport. So the importance of, of understanding what's being asked of me and uh, the importance of self of questioning, but more important, self-questioning in doing that. Yeah, I think we could we could use a lot more of self-questioning, not in the question yourself to the extent of you know just total doubt and nothing is real and how can I know anything? I know you don't mean that, but no, really examining, searching for the assumptions, not just stopping at the ones that you know you found, but to continue to to look and think and try to unearth those. What's motivating them? What yeah. are the what are the consequences of this decision? What are the points of view I'm considering? What am I not considering? Those sorts of things. Yeah, a fairly concrete example of that is uh, interpret interpreting. That's a kind of conclusion. So I don't mean interpreting a foreign language. I mean interpreting what's going on around me. So I, by by thinking about critical thinking, by working on it, I can realize that I'm always interpreting what's going on around me. Right. I'm making observations and I'm drawing conclusions almost entirely unconsciously. So a good question to ask myself is, how am I interpreting this situation? So you meet somebody and you conclude, oh, he or she, the person's angry at me and because they look a certain way. And Think of all the other alternatives there can be. They're angry about something else. They're not really angry. That's the way they look when they're right. close. Right. I mean, they're all, they're all those others. So we just did, so a good question to ask myself is, how am I interpreting the situation? But you're right. I'm not, I wasn't focusing on those deep undermining questions. Uh, what is reality? Um, <laughs> am I really here? Is this all a simulation? Really yeah, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I mean, there's a time and place for those, but I, I think, <laughs> you know, you, you mean a, a different type of self-examination. Right, right. Gerald, this has been an awesome conversation. I've learned a ton. I've had a lot of fun talking with you. Do you have any parting thoughts or shots for our listeners? Mm, I thought I just I gave a bunch of parting shots. I, I, I want to we can, we start can, it off with parting shots. Yeah, we, we can. But let me say, Damien, how it really enjoyable and, and rich this conversation was <laughs> all the way through. I mean, it just it's just very clear that you're, you're deeply engaged in critical thinking and in wanting to make the military better. So that's just informed 
not just the military, but society in general. And that's informed this all the way through. This has wow. been a really rich interview. Well, thank you. It's, it's an honor to hear that from you. And I hope we can have you back on and uh, I'd love to find ways to get the Warfighting Society, this, this organization I'm involved with, to link up with the Center and Foundation for Critical Thinking and, and work with great people like you. So certainly I uh, hope this is the first of many more conversations. Me too. Me too. Excellent. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you.